to another edition of the Talking Myths Podcast here on this Sunday, January 8th, 2017, our first broadcast here in 2017. Of course, if you want to check out the show, go to MetsamorizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet, at Mike Silva Media. You can check out the show also on SoundCloud, iTunes, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Happy New Year, everybody. I uh, hope you had a great holiday. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been on the air. Obviously, with the uh, Christmas and New Year holidays falling on a Sunday, and really nothing much going on with the hot stove. The hot stove is about as cold as the temperatures over here in New York. I'm out on Long Island. We had about 8 to 12 inches out here, um, so we're thawing out here on this Sunday, and uh, figured to put together a podcast for you guys, something a little different. Now, with the hot stove being, like I said, cold, I don't know if we're going to do much talk. Yeah, there's Jay Bruce still out there, and the Mets need a couple of relievers. Everything's pretty much at a stalemate here. There's nothing really to report. It's somewhat weird how things are so slow. I wonder if things will start to pick up. Uh, and I also wonder, there was some talk about this on MLB Network Radio, whether the holidays actually people are starting to shut down a little bit in baseball and start to take some time off, although they are keeping their eye on some things. So it's a very slow-developing back end of the market. You had some big news early on with the signing of a Cespedes. You had some deals over at the winter meetings. But you still got guys out there that are available like Jose Batista and so on and so forth. So Mark Trumbo, it looks like there's a bit of a jam when it comes to power-hitting outfielders, and I think that that's what's holding up Jay Bruce. It's interesting that with all this, Jerry Blevins still still hasn't signed because some lefty relievers have gotten three-year deals, and I know that I – as well as many Mets fans hold out hope that the Mets could find a way to bring Blevins back on a reasonable deal. There are some other lefties out there, one-year options, but I think Blevins, and I like to keep players here that have done well, so Blevins is a good fit. But there's really not much to talk about today, so I decided to take a different approach. Uh, Late this summer, a book came out called Long Before the Miracle by Bill Sullivan. It's a book about the early 60s Mets. And there isn't much written about the early 60s Mets in, the, in this concept of it's always about 1962 and then it's about 1969. There's that seven-year period that this team was built and Bill examined that. He's a, a young man. He was a Mets fan, saw the Mets at the polo grounds, wanted to go through finding some of the relatives as well as those who are still uh, alive, some of the players that were part of that process, including some members uh, the forward was written by Jerry Kuzman that were part of the 1969 championship team and the team that was competitive there from the late, late you know, 69 until about you know, the early 70s and, all, of, of course, the, the, the pennant they won in 1973. So Bill will join me in a couple of minutes. We'll chat about his book. Other than that, you know, these are the kind of segments we're going to have to do during these quiet times of the offseason. We have the Hall of Fame show next week. Now watch. It's, it's dead as a doornail this week. A lot of things will happen in the upcoming week, and we'll have to hybrid our show. But what I'm going to do next Sunday as we prepare for the Hall of Fame vote, which really won't have this year any impact on Mets fans with Piazza last year. It would have been a much different scenario, but have a chance and an opportunity to go through, get some good guests, maybe get a member of the BBWAA, talk about who I think are Hall of Famers, maybe some of the trends since Bud Selig's election into the Hall of Fame there has been more of a push with 90s turn-of-the-century players that were not getting any support. So we'll see how that continues to go, and we'll have some updates next week. So next week will be, at the very least, will be a Hall of Fame show. If some kind of news hot stove happens, we'll have to split it up and do somewhat of a hybrid program. 
But uh, for this week, to kick back into the gear for 2017, we're going to take a quick break. When I return, Bill Sullivan, author of the book Long Before the Miracle, will join me. And we'll chat about the early 60s Mets and his experience writing a book about those group of Mets. We'll be right back. After an absence of four years, National League Baseball came back to Broadway. While learning how the other half lives, Casey Stengel, the lovable leader of New York's amazing Mets, suffered through a season of summer shock. The Mets felt that established stars such as Richie Ashburn and Gil Hodges would appeal to New York sophisticates. Charlie Neal, another former Dodger, was claimed to lure Brooklynites into the polo grounds. Frank Thomas, purchased from the Braves, was almost as big a hit as South Pacific. Tony Kloninger finds out that Marv Thronberry thrives on high fastballs. There's nothing cheap about this home run, but then the Mets always do things the hard way. For a pull hitter like Frank Thomas, the polo grounds proved a tailor-made part. With 34 home runs, Thomas paced the Mets in the power department. Richie Ashburn was voted most valuable Met by New York fans. A former batting king of the senior circuit, Richie still has some base hits in his bats as evidenced by his 306 average. The New Yorkers find trouble when Ashburn gets trapped in a pickle. Although it wasn't easy, the Mets managed to lose 120 games for a new National League record. Ray Davio deals, Gus Bell wheels, and New York squeals with one crack of the bat. The Mets are in arrears as Gus rings the bell with a three-run rifle shot. Vinegar Ben Mizell dishes up a pitch which Joe Adcock belts into oblivion. Say what you may about the Mets pitchers, but never call them stingy. Mizell uncorks a wild pitch which allows Samuel to score. It was sad to see the colorful Vinegar Ben reach the end of the big league line. The Keystone combo of Chacon and Neal chalked up plenty of double plays, but they had more chances than anyone else. For when the game was over, the amazing Mets were usually far behind. We're back, Talking Mets podcast, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, the hot stove has been kind of cold. It's pretty cold here in the New York area this weekend with uh, a ton of snow, but maybe we'll take a little time machine here, go back in time, and have with me Bill Sullivan. Bill came out with a book earlier in uh, the season, actually mid-season, I think, uh, the summertime, uh, looking at the early 60s Mets. A lot of people remember, obviously, talk about the 69 Mets, and you hear all those narratives about the 62 Mets, but Bill looked at that early portion of the team's history and wrote a book long before the miracle the making of the new york mets you could check it out over at amazon bill mike silva how are you today uh snowy here in new york hopefully uh, you're warm where you are well we have a couple inches here in the washington dc area so that's like three feet you know for the folks here <laughs> we're snowed in kind of <laughs> yeah. yeah no i i down south you guys uh you guys uh definitely don't handle snow all that frequently but you know bill like i i said in the open here Everybody talks about the 69 Mets, and many books have been made about the 69 Mets, and everybody talks about the 62 Mets and that narrative. You went a little bit different with this project. Uh, you, you published it yourself. 
you want to look at the early 60s Mets before they became a competitive team and examine that whole period. Talk a little bit about what brought this on. What made you come up with this idea? And, and writing books is difficult, so taking on a project on your own here as well. Boy, that's a long answer, Mike. Well, let's see. I have a journalism degree, so I was a sports writer, um, sports public information officer for about 18 years, and um, now I'm a landscape design contractor. But So I had a writing background, but I grew up in Schenectady, upstate New York, and um, I fell in love with the Mets when I was six years old and uh, would go to the store and buy a pack of wax pack cards for $5.00. Uh, my mother took me to a Mets game at the Polo Grounds in August of 1962. On that day, the Mets won a doubleheader over Cincinnati. They won two games that day, and they won 40 all year. So wow! So you would two and zero. You would two and zero in 1962 as a fan going to games. Is that is that what right. you're telling me? Wow! That's right. Oh wow. yeah. But, um, Wow. I go way back. Like I said, I fell in love with the Mets as a boy, and always wanted to write a book. So I finally did last year. Yep. And let me ask you this before we can get the book, like the polo grounds, I've seen 3d renditions of it. Obviously a little bit of what they, they have in terms of videos, quirky little ballpark. How is it watching a game there? You had the, the, the short porches. It was cavernous in the middle. It was slapped in the middle of upper Manhattan. It was a weird, very weird ballpark. And the giants, you know, we'll get to whole giants and Dodgers leaving. Cause I know you looked into it. Giants weren't really drawing all that much before they left, actually less than the Dodgers. So I wonder right. if the ballpark had something to do with the location or whatever it would have be. Well, sitting at the Polo Grounds, I had that huge scoreboard over the clubhouse with the Rheingold beer sign. And um, like you mentioned accurately, the, the foul poles were like 258 and 257 down each line. Dead center was like something like 480 feet all the way to the clubhouse. They had a, they had a statue out there like the Yankees. I guess did in the old Yankee stadium, but yeah, it was cavernous to center field. I think only three people, three batters hit home runs that made the center field bleachers, Hank Aaron, Lou Brock, and Joe Adcock. So it, it was, yeah, it was an old fashioned stadium, but the shot heard around the world was there and the New York giants played there. The Yankees played there before Yankee stadium was built. And, um, but anyway, and getting back to you. Yeah. They, the Dodgers and the Giants left New York after the 57 season because neither were drawing well. You know, they were hurting at the gate. So, uh, Absolutely. I mean, if you look, um, and it was interesting because, and I'll get what you learned a little bit about the transition from the Giants and Dodgers. I mean, we know they wanted new ballparks and all that stuff, but the attendance was bad. I mean, the Giants, right before they left, were drawing about 600,000 fans. That's really bad. Uh, right. the, the Dodgers were a little bit better at a million and then you look at the Mets, their first couple of years at the Polo Grounds, they're only drawing about a million fans, so they were drawing less than the combined two teams before they left. And, and this has always been, quote-unquote, a National League town. Now, that changed as they went over to Shea Stadium, and, and they actually were outdrawing the Yankees at that point. So talk a little bit of what you learned. You know, these two teams leave, these beloved teams, um, maybe the Dodgers are a little bit more beloved than the Giants, uh, if you look at the attendance right. numbers. And then the Mets come in, and as much as they're this lovable team, the attendance numbers, unless I'm looking at it from a 1962 prism or not looking at it from a 1962 prism, uh, didn't really, uh, you know, it didn't spark the interest of the National League fan as much as maybe uh, people are talking about or remembering. That's true, but I guess the fans were, were patient. I guess it had been five, six years from 57 to 62 when New York City did not have a National League team. 
And some people were diehard National League fans like me and didn't want to go to Yankee Stadium. So when the Giants and Dodgers left, there was a void. And I, I think the, maybe the New Yorkers were hungry for National League baseball. And they were sympathetic toward the Mets, even though the Mets were horrible on the field. They, they kind of stuck with them and were patient. And then during the 60s, obviously, the Mets got better and better and better until 69 when, you know, they won it all. Um, but, um, yeah, it just seems like they fell in love with the Mets, the fans did. And it never stopped, you know. So. Is that is that why you decided to become a Mets fan? Is that kind of your uh, you know because you obviously you know you grew up upstate New York you could have easily been a Yankees fan you know maybe taking on another team outside of New York the Red Sox you weren't grown up you didn't grow up in the heart of Brooklyn or Manhattan with the Dodgers right. or Giants. I I had a mind of my own at age six I guess um, my father passed away um, he was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. And he died in July of 55. And then, as you know, the Dodgers won their first World Series like four months later in October 55. So I didn't ever know him. But all my uncles were Yankees fans and Giants and all this other stuff. And they would tease me about liking such a losing team. (laughs) And I don't know what it was, but my uncle would put me on his lap and he would say, with the daily news in his hand, he'd say, okay, you see all these teams in the standings? You see M-E-T-S in capital letters, all bold-faced? That's your team. It's in last place. (laughs) They never get out of last place. So I think all that feedback made me love the Mets. And my uncle took me to the polo grounds once in 63. And remember, we pulled up, the Harlem River was there, and he pulled up, and I was seven at the time. He says, okay, we can go to Yankee Stadium just as easily. It's right over there. And I can remember being seven saying, no, I am not doing that. <laughs> and it was a three-hour yeah, drive from, well, from Schenectady, yeah. Manhattan on the throughway. It was three hours each way. But right. I don't know. I just fell in love and stayed in love with them, the Mets. Yeah? So, so now you, you – and I have with me Bill Sullivan, author of the book, Long Before the Miracle, The Making of the New York Mets. So now you take on this project, and now you're trying to get in touch with either – the significant other, if they're if they've passed on, or the actual players from that era, and I and and I and I ran up. I you know I'm not a huge advanced statistics guy, but I use some advanced statistics, wins above replacement, to see some of the top players right. during that era. You know, if you look at positionally names like Ron Hunt, this is you know prior to 1968, where you know maybe is a demarcation line where they started to get better. So let's look at guys like Ron Hunt, Jim Hickman, Frank Thomas, uh, Ken Boyer. Uh, recently, uh, Chris Canizaro, who recently passed away, is right. is one of the top five offensive players on that team. And then if you go to the pitching, you got Roger Craig, Jack Fisher, uh, Carl Willie, uh, uh, Al Jackson. And so it's these are not. I mean, Roger Craig, you, people may remember from his time managing the Giants, but um, these are not players that are going to go down in Mets uh, history as the top players uh, anywhere near the top of the franchise. So talk about what you learned. You know who you got in touch with and and the process of kind of building this, this, this book? Boy. Well, uh, I have a reporting background, a writing background in sports, and I like to investigate. So I just went on search engines and found people. A lot of times with the deceased Mets, I would go to the New York Times obituary, and it would say something like, such and such Mets widow, Joanne V. Smith, and his daughter, Kimberly P. Jackson, you know, and that would be very easy to find people if you have their middle initial. So I would call relatives and talk about their, their Mets relatives. And, boy, I just love tracking down, uh, you know, people. I, I talked to the sons of Duke Snyder, um, Warren Spahn, <laughs> let's see who else, um, Gil Hodges. And, and, and people would talk about their brothers or fathers. 
or you know, Roy McMillan played for the 65 Mets, managed the Mets. I talked to Roy's sister in Arlington, Texas, and she said, oh, yeah. And, and you know, Mike, she told me stories that we as boys could relate to. Yeah, we'd go up in our house and had the sloped roof, and we'd throw a tennis ball up there, and then Roy and I would run over to the edge and try to catch it. And that's how he learned to catch pop-ups. And it's wow. just great stories like that, you know. So what I, I interviewed about 95 you... people for the book. Right, that you you interviewed a ton of people. Was there something that you learned about a player or uh, that era that you didn't know going in that really stands out to you? When someone brings up the book and say, hey, "What's that one thing that you took away? A story, something? Maybe it's the way you went about tracking someone down. Is there anything that stands out uh, above all others?" Sure, there are a few. Um, Larry Burright was a Dodger played for the 62 Mets, and he said, you know, Bill, I'm proud of what I did. I was kind of a marginal player, but I was in the major leagues when there were 16 teams. And now what are they, like 30, 31? And he said, I'm proud that I made it when they didn't have many teams. And then um, let's see, who else here? Um, Ron Hunt told me, who you know was hit by the pitch more than just about any other player for until somebody broke his record. But he said, you know, Bill, you make too many right turns at first base and you go home and, and he just got on base any way he could, you know? Right. Right. Um, and he's, he's one of the best positional players during that era. Actually the best. If you look at advanced statistics, interesting enough, Ron Hunt will go down as the, you know, heart and soul of the Mets offense during that period, which is interesting. But Ron is a real brusque guy. He was my favorite player growing up. And um, he calls me like once a week now we become friends but he what? went up to Casey Stengel and he said, look, I'm, I'm not a reserve. I don't want to sit in the bullpen during games. You know, he said, Larry Burright is starting at second, and I can do a better job. And he said, Stengel said, you really think so, kid? He said, yes, sir, I do. <laughs> and then Hunt started the next day. And, I mean, Ron was the type of guy, he spoke up. I and mean, you got to give him credit, you know. He spoke Absolutely. up. So, um, Absolutely. But there's so yeah. many stories. Like Roger Craig, he pitched that first game that I ever saw on the polo grounds. So he called me back, and he said he was pitching in Montreal, Dodgers AAA team, and a teammate of his was Tom Lasorda. Well, the Dodgers called. Roger Craig flew to Brooklyn, met with Walter Alston. Walter said, Roger, you're coming to the big team. Tell your wife you're moving here. Roger grabs a suitcase, walks out of the clubhouse, and somebody intercepts him and says, welcome to the Major League Baseball. And Roger said, that was Jackie Robinson. <laughs> Wow. And Roger said to me, Jackie took me to LaGuardia to the airport. And then Roger said, you know, Bill, I grew up in Durham, North Carolina, and blacks and whites didn't talk much down there. And he was really moved by that. Because you know, Roger wow. grew up probably in the late 40s when segregation was just another day at the office, you know. Absolutely. So Those great some, great, some great stories. Uh, and obviously, uh, having interviewed a bunch of players my time that I, I watched growing up while rooting for the Mets in the 80s, it's definitely a great a great experience. You know, one of, one of the things, Bill, that I always think about, regardless of the era, you know, whether it's the Mets when they were bad before they got good in the 80s or even in the last few years before they were contenders, there's always players on those not-so-great teams that become, you know, I don't want to say folk heroes, but you wish that they'll be around when the team is good because you're like, that that guy would fit a good yeah. team. And it never happens because they the timing is bad. I mean, Ron Swoboda played – part of that bad period uh, with the Mets, but and he was there uh, when obviously they won the championship in 1969. Is there a player that you remember that you really wished was part of that 69-73 run 
where um, you know they really deserved because of their contribution, because of who they were, uh, to be part of a winner. Uh, when the footnote in history will be that they were a nice little story on a team that, if, unless you're a Mets fan, no one's going to remember. That's a good question. Yeah, guys like Frank Thomas, Jim Hickman, Ron Hunt. I mean, Ron was the first Mets All-Star to start a game in '64. I mean, uh, those were you know quality players. Frank Thomas was a big bopper, had home run power. And, you know, they were with the Mets, but obviously when the Mets became good in 68, 69, 70, 71, they were long gone or with other teams. And, yeah, I talked to a lot of guys I had a cup of coffee, you know, played like one year or something, you know, and they'd be on the phone. They were so self-effacing, like, gee, Bill, it's really no big deal. I only played four months of one season or I only played a year and then I was selling insurance the next year. And I said, yeah, but you achieved your lifelong dream. You know, how many guys would like to put on a uniform for one day? So right. a lot of these also ran Mets players and they were very, very modest, you know, it, like Bond, his son told me Warren Spahn worked as a bricklayer's apprentice in Boston when he was a Boston brave. Um, wow. The Boston Braves owner owned a construction company. Imagine, imagine like, uh, I don't know, uh, Clayton Kershaw having a part-time job in the winter right. working at Home right. Depot to support his family. Yeah, so he pushed a wheelbarrow full of wet cement. Try doing that. And, and this yeah. guy had a Hall of Fame arm. He could have been hurt. Right. But guys in that era, they had, they had off-season jobs. So no, they didn't make absolutely. any money. You know? Absolutely. They, that's, the, that's the part that a lot of – uh, and that's during the reserve clause. Uh, you know, recently I was watching on MLB Network the uh, baseball documentary, and I think it's uh, anybody who you know is a modern fan that maybe it may have grown up in the era of free agency really should go back. And and that's just the tip of the iceberg. What you said, how the players were uh, were treated. With me, Bill Sullivan, uh, author of the book uh, Long Before the Miracle. Bill, do you remember going? Did you go to Shea Stadium those first couple of years during its uh, when it was a new ballpark? You know, now everybody remembers it as that dump that. Um, you know, it was replaced yeah. by City Field. It's it's now the parking lot of City Field. Do you do you remember right. going to Shea Stadium? Do you remember any stories uh, during those early years? Yeah, yeah. I went to I went to the Shea Stadium parking lot last year because what they do, like you said, City Field sits right there. They, they have brass markers in the asphalt where the pitching mound, where first base was. So that was pretty neat to stand there. But I went to the game um, at Shea Stadium when Tom Seaver came back as a Cincinnati Red, maybe 77, was it? And he hit a double, I think, off Jerry Kuzman. That stadium went crazy. I think Tom got the win, and he had a single and a double as a Cincinnati Red at Chase Stadium. Nice little homecoming. <laughs> nice little – and, you know, you bring up you bring up Seaver. Here's the amazing part. If you took take every pitcher that pitched for the Mets from 1962 to 1967 and you just ranked them by wins above replacement, Again, I'm just th- just trying an easy way to categorize everybody. Uh, Roger Craig is a little over five wins worth during that time. Seaver, who came up in 1967, one year, yep. age 22, more valuable in that one year than any Mets pitcher the five years prior. So it just shows you, and I don't know if you, you delve into that uh, with any of these individuals, how important that transition. If 67 is probably that demarcation line where now things are starting to get a little more serious, and it's not just this expansion team where – you know, everyone's going out just to to see something that they, uh, they that was taken away from them when the Dodgers and Giants left. Yeah, I didn't get into the WAR much, but like you said, in '67 and '8, the Mets had Kuzman, Seaver, Ryan, Gentry, and Nolan Ryan was very fortunate. I talked to his wife Ruth, and 
no one had arm trouble, and they didn't have Tommy John surgery in 1966, 67. They didn't know who Tommy John was. He went back to Texas, and his surgeons and his doctors said, take the year off and take it easy, Nolan. <laughs> That's what he wow. did. And then he yeah. came back the next year, and whew, the rest is Hall of Fame history. You know? Right. Ab- absolutely. But did Nolan really wasn't uh, – What's that? Go ahead. No, Nolan taking time off. I mean, that tells you where maybe some of his struggles were early on. You know, he was maybe not that body was 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 a little injured. He was wild. He couldn't find the strike zone, which was 17 and a half inches wide, the plate. And he was wild. He'd walk people. And um, he wasn't a real stellar uh, pitcher to begin with. Yeah, but he had an amazing fastball, 104 miles an hour, as like a 20-year-old. So, Um, but he. I don't think he really liked New York too much. He was a Texas guy, you know? And um, yep. and uh, Gil Hodges never really, I don't know if he wasn't patient with him because no one took the year off, but he also had Seaver, Kuzman, and Gentry. So no one was a little lost in that rotation early on as a kid. Yeah. A couple of things but before we wrap up. I have with me Bill Sullivan, author of the book Long Before the Miracle, uh, talking about the early 60s Mets. Expansion teams now are built so differently. Uh, it's almost like you come in and you've seen the Florida Marlins and the Rockies make the playoffs and win championship, at least on the Marlins' part. Arizona win a championship right away. Did you have a chance to, to talk to anybody or get a feel of you know what was the plan with those Mets teams other than getting a new ballpark? It took you know seven years is actually not that long when you think about the environment right. of the '60s and what baseball is. That's but fast. by today's stand, standards. Um, it's long because everybody wants immediate success. Did you did you learn about what the actual uh, thought plan was, or what the, uh, the, the the thought process was to get this team good, and what they felt it would take? Because it was just so bad those first few years with 108, 109, 110 losses. Yeah, I think um, well, Bill Shea, uh, a la Shea Stadium, he was appointed by the New York mayor to found the commission to get National League Baseball back. And and the fact that New York City had National League Baseball in 1962 was was satisfying, and the Mets were patient. So I don't know if they had a plan like, okay, we need to make this a five-year plan to get to the World Series. You know, they went through a couple of general managers. They had then they had managers Casey Stengel, Wes Westrom, and Gil Hodges. A lot of the players told me once Gil came in, that everything changed. He also had a great pitching staff, but he didn't have great hitting outside of Cleon Jones. But he was very, very serious and very, very modest. And a lot of players told me Gill was the real reason everything turned around. You know, all, all the guys, Jerry Kuzman told me that. And, and just Gill made a big difference. You know, he was, he was respected in New York City with the Brooklyn Dodgers, a great player. And um, he had managed the Washington Senators to some success before he came to New York. But, um, yeah, the Mets pointed to Gill as a real turnaround, which led to the 69, you know, series championship. And you got Jerry Kuzman to write the forward, though, so you must have had a, a good rapport with him and, and got him to actually write a forward to the book. Jerry was another guy who became a friend, very folksy, very easy to talk to. And as, you're a sports journalist, as I am, and you have to separate yourself. You, you don't get excited. You don't ask for autographs, da 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 But talking to some of these guys, I thought, my God, I was a kid. Um, I, I – I've got a high school detention because I wouldn't take the earphone out of my transistor radio when the Mets were playing in the World Series. So my, the priest yeah. said, you're going to have to go to detention, Mr. Solomon. I said, well, <laughs> that's the way it is because I've waited 15 years for that. But Jerry right. Kuzman, I said, Jerry, tell me about the last at bat to Davey Johnson, Baltimore Orioles. He said, Bill, I was so nervous. I was losing some feeling in the fingers on my left hand and I couldn't break the curve like I really wanted to. God. I mean, stuff like that just 
it makes your skin, you know, <laughs> go crazy. Right. It gets I mean, you, again, as a boy, you, you worship the these guys, and then you talk to them, and they're taking you in the dugout. And Ralph Terry talking about the 1962 series when he was with the Yankees, and he said, you know, Bill, I had Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, and uh, Orlando Cepeda, three, four, five in the lineup, you know. And then Jim Ray Hart came in after that, and it's like you're on the pitching mound with them, you know, and the stories right. were great. That is that is awesome. Let me ask you one thing before we wrap up here. So the transition from the Dodgers to Giants is a lot there. You know, Branch Rickey in the Continental League, obviously uh, Robert Moses. They won a new ballpark. The Dodgers could have easily stayed and been where City Field is today. What did you take away from that? Did you learn anything about that? Was there something that you, you took away, an interesting story or some kind of insight that the, when someone picks up the book, they're going to they're gonna enjoy that portion of, um, of, I guess, the history or the making of the Mets? Very good question, because had the Dodgers and Giants stay, uh, stayed, we wouldn't be talking. <laughs> Nets never would have been born. So I, I called a woman named Rosalind Weiner. She was on the Los Angeles City Council in the mid-50s, 1950s. The L.A. mayor appointed her and said, get the Brooklyn Dodgers here. We want a team in L.A. So she, was a, she talked to Walter, trying to you know, lobby Anyway, um, she didn't talk to me much, but she took me, put me in touch with Peter O'Malley, Walter's son, and Peter O'Malley's office gave me the transcripts between Walter and Robert Moses, the telegrams wow. in those days. Walter O'Malley, wow. O'Malley really wanted to stay, but he wanted the park to be built where the Brooklyn Nets, I think, are playing right now, you know, Atlantic right. Avenue in Brooklyn. He, he didn't want to leave Brooklyn, and Robert Moses was all about the suburbs. Well, let's go out here. Let's go out here in the city. And Walter said, no, I want to stay in Brooklyn. And they just couldn't agree on a geographic site. And, you know, the parking was limited at, at Ebbets Field. It wasn't entirely safe to go there. And he, O'Malley wasn't drawing. And then L.A. was welcoming with his brand-new 58,000-seat stadium. So I tried to get in touch with the Moses family, but I couldn't. But the O'Malley family gave me a lot of documents which I read and understood all about the, you know, reasons why they left. Right. I mean, so. look, you, you, pretty much like any team now, they want parking, they want safety, they want to grab yeah. from a suburban uh, clientele. Back then there was a, obviously a wave of people leaving the cities to the suburbs, Long Island, so-and-so, and what have you. Um, Bill, so the book is long before the miracle, The Making of the New York Mets. Um, it's available on Amazon, uh, paperback. Um, give it, give the listeners an idea. You know, anything you want them to know. Contacting you, uh, getting the book, or anything you got coming up. Well, they can uh, buy it on Amazon, like you mentioned, or they can email me, Bill Sullivan forty one at gmail dot com. We all know what forty one stands for. Yeah, I was going to say. I think I I picked that one up when I emailed you. Like, yeah, Bill Sullivan forty one. If they ever want to chat with me or, or sign the book, I'd be glad to do that. But it's something that uh, it's selling pretty well, better than I thought, but. Um, it's just something I always wanted to do my entire life and just to do it. And it's kind of my own little legacy, you know, I really enjoy very it. Just all, and I enjoy interviews like this where I get a chance to talk about the process of writing the book. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's been generous at your time here on a weekend. Let's, uh, let's stay in touch. Uh, the book is long before the miracle, the making of the New York Mets, Bill Sullivan, Bill, enjoy the rest of your weekend, my friend. My, excellent questions. And thanks a lot for having me on your podcast. I appreciate it. And that's Bill Sullivan, Long Before the Miracle. Check it out on Amazon. A uh, really good opportunity to read a little bit about Mets history. And, and look, there are probably many of you in the audience that 
lived or watched the Mets during that time, but there are probably many of you that, that all this is, is is pretty much a history book. And at some point, you know, I think an appreciation or learning of where this team has come. And I know sometimes because the Mets have only had two championships, you get kind of tired of talking about 86-69. So sometimes it's fun to look at different segments of the team's history to learn where they went, where they came from, and it'll be give you a reason why the the team has taken the turns that they uh, that they have over the course of their history. So Bill Sullivan, appreciate him spending some time. You know, real quick, it's real interesting to look at some of the numbers. You know, a guy like Ron Hunt, he mentioned, who statistically with wins above replacement, uh, he was aged 22 to 25 during those 1963 to 66 seasons that he played with the Mets. And uh, here's a guy that had a OPS of about 723, hit 20 home runs known more for hit, uh, hit by pitches. But here's a guy that got on base at a 34% clip, a guy who who walked almost as much as he struck out. So a nice little player. And I think that that was the kind of player that I was mentioning that could have potentially helped the Mets or someone who you might have wanted to see be part of the Mets in 1969. But always when you have these teams in transition, there's really no way to to keep everybody, and a lot of times, a lot of these transitional guys will wind up, uh, um, you know, wind up not being part of the solution. And 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 Ron Hunt was traded after the 1966 season for uh, Tommy Davis and Daryl Griffith, and Tommy Davis really didn't do much uh, for the Mets. Uh, Tommy Davis wound up playing for the Mets uh, very briefly, one season, hit 300. Actually, had a good year with the Mets. Actually, hit 300. Uh, only spent that one season, and then, and then, well, here's where the value, and here's really where it all comes into play, is that uh, Tommy Davis was wound, wound up getting traded from the Mets for Tommy Agee and Al Weiss. So funny how Ron Hunt, a guy that you would think would be part of the solution, because he was a decent little player with the Mets during those lean years, winds up uh, six degrees of separation being part of the solution and bringing Tommy Agee and Al Weiss, two guys, surprisingly Al Weiss, who were such a big part of the 1969 team. So uh, interesting segment with Bill Sullivan. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Like I said, next week we'll have our Hall of Fame show. We'll continue to keep an eye out on the hot stove. Uh, Spring training's right around the corner. I mean, pitchers and catchers are a little more than a month away, so it may be cold outside. You guys might be, uh, you know, out there thawing yourself out, blowing your snow, you know, shoveling, getting your cars all out of there, but it's you know spring training in Port St. Lucie's right around the corner. It's amazing because right after the holidays, that's when you really begin the push. And it seems like there's still so much left for the Mets and other teams to do. And there's so many players out there. And uh, who knows? Who knows what the week brings? It's 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 certainly you, you got to imagine that things are going to start to heat up, for lack of a better word, on the hot stove. Anyway, want to thank everybody for tuning in. Want to thank Bill Sullivan. Check out his book, Long Before the Miracle. Uh, you can check it out on Amazon. Of course, you can send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show all the time on MetsmorizeOnline.com, Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Hope you enjoyed our first show back, and I will see you next week.